You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we will be starting in verse 24, and it's the closing of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church. He wanted to leave them some final instruction, right? Some final instructions that when we look at closely, we're going to realize have a direct implication to our lives today as well. You see, Paul has spent the entire book of 1 Thessalonians uh, going uh, through different pr- uh, principles and, and dealing with different issues that, the, that have arisen within the church. And now he comes to the close of, of this uh, first book to the Thessalonians. And he's got some final instructions for them, right? And these instructions, they're all pointing toward one thing that Paul desired for the church then to know and that God desires for his church, that is us, today to know as well. And that is sanctification. So sanctification is like building or constructing something, right? Maybe you you built your own house, or as a kid you built uh, something with Legos, or maybe as an adult you build things with Legos, or maybe you sew or you quilt I'd imagine at some point in your life you have built or constructed something. And whenever you are building something, it doesn't start out looking like the finished product, does it? Growing up, my grandparents built a couple of the homes that we lived in. And I can remember getting to see that process go from a design on a piece of paper and slowly and surely become what it was that we lived in. It started on that piece of paper and then eventually it became a plot of land that was overgrown with trees and sticker bushes and stuff like that. And then the land gets cleared and a bunch of dirt gets brought in and as, as more hard work goes into it, walls start getting put up, and, and sooner or later there's a roof, there's doors and windows getting installed, all of the, the interior finish work starts to happen, and before you know it, this thing's starting to look like a real house, right? And, bef- and then before long after that even, it's painted, all the landscape is done, we're living in it, and finally after months of hard work, there's a completed house, but it didn't get that way overnight, right? You see, sanctification is defined by progressively becoming more like Jesus. Progressively becoming more like Jesus, right? It's gradually becoming holy and becoming more like Jesus. Little by little, over time, we're being conformed to the image of Christ. And so you see, in a similar way to the house starting as a wooded, sticked brush pile, slowly but surely becoming the home that it was to be. As we are living our lives for God, we are being sanctified. And over time, the Spirit of God is working in us to progressively become more like Jesus. Progressively become more like Jesus. And that's what Paul's getting at here in our text this morning. He wanted the Thessalonians to know that complete sanctification is what God had for them. And church, it's the same for us today. Complete sanctification is what we are to strive for. It's what we are to desire. And so here we have a few instructions from Paul that are going to lead us on the path of allowing the Lord's work of sanctification to take place in our lives. There are instructions concerning a few things, right? Our relationship to church leaders, number one. Number two, there's an exhortation on how to deal with difficult people. And then number three, regards our worship personally and publicly. And so we're just going to start right off here 
in verse 12, looking at our relationship to church leadership. Would you read with me in verse 12? We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So there's a call here, right? Or an urge from Paul to recognize to recognize or to respect our church leaders. So Paul tells us to recognize or to respect our church leadership, right? And how does he describe church leadership? He used three categories, didn't he? He said those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. Those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. And so what we see here, right, is that that it's more than just our pastor that is considered to be in a place of leadership in the church. Let's look at these three groups of people. He says, first, those who labor among you. And so leaders are recognized, right, not by their title, but rather by their service. Leaders are recognized not by their title, but rather by their service. And so I may have the title around here as administrative pastor, but you see, if I just sit in my office all week long and I do nothing in regard to the operation of this church and the spiritual health and well-being of those who attend it, then am I really a church leader? See, a title is fine, but only if the title describes what the individual truly is and does. So a leader is those who labor among you. And number two, those who are over you in the Lord. Leaders are recognized as being over the congregation. And this is where the pastor comes into play. In the same way that a shepherd is head over the sheep, so is the pastor over the church. He provides them guidance and direction. See, leaders being over you in the Lord, it also describes a clear and a legitimate order of authority within the church. So that's number two. We have leaders that are those who labor among you, those who are over you in the Lord. And now number three, those who admonish you. To admonish means to caution or to gently reprove or warn. Admonishment is not meant to be overbearing or harsh, but it is corrective. It's, it's, a, it's a brotherly term, right? But it's like a big brother term. Those who labor among you, admonish you and are over you in the Lord. These are the church leaders that are to be recognized. And now Paul moves on to tell us, what do we do regarding those that we recognize as leaders within the church, right? That's in verse 13. What does he say? We esteem them highly in love because of their work. We esteem them highly in love because of their work. So we are called to love our church leaders, right? Not because of their title or their personality, but because of their labor on behalf of God's people. Because of their labor on behalf of God's people. And it is a labor. And that's why there's no room in the ministry for a lazy pastor, right? I know there are those of you out there who think that all we do around here is come to work for a couple hours on Sunday and on Wednesday, but that's just simply not true. It is a labor and I'd love to take you on a, on a jaunt through my schedule and bring you along with me, but I don't have time for that. So two times in a row now, Paul talks about the work of the ministry, and he connects it to respect and to love, right? To respect and to love. 
that ministers should have from those that they oversee. So understand that work and periods of time with long hours is an essential aspect of the ministry. And again, there's no place in that for a lazy pastor. And even beyond that, we're all called to ministry, right? Understand that, that it is hard work, that there's often times where it's long work. David Guzik said that if a Christian cannot esteem and love their pastor, they should either get on their knees asking the Holy Spirit to change their heart or go somewhere else and put themselves under a pastor who they can love and esteem. So transitioning now, Paul takes us out of telling us to love and respect our leadership in the church, and he moves into instructing them on ministering to difficult people. So let's pick up back in verse 14, if you will. He says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So here in verses 14 and 15, Paul is now exhorting the Thessalonian church, right? He's exhorting them on how to deal with difficult people. And I'm grateful that we serve a God who understands the kind of instruction that we need, right? And this here is an exhortation to the church at large. So he's no longer just talking to the pastors and the leaders but it's the church at large, right? This is an exhortation for all of us. It's applicable to everyone in the church because we're all called to minister to those around us, right? And that looks a variety of different ways depending on the state of the person being ministered to. We're all called to minister to those in our lives, right? And the reality is that people aren't always easy to minister to, are they? Because people are messy, and we all experience this, don't we? Whether it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, loving the people around us is not always easy to do. And hey, sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, you and I are the ones that are difficult and messy and hard to love from time to time, aren't we? Paul here, he gives us some examples on how we're to minister to difficult people. Because the reality is, is that it's gonna look different for different people. Some need comfort, others need encouragement, others need correction, and the list goes on. But we, as Christians, have a responsibility to respond to those in need and to show them the love of Jesus, right? So he mentioned a few people. The first was the unruly. He said that they need to be warned. Now, the unruly, <clears throat> these are people who are out of order, right? This is a military term to describe a soldier who breaks rank or marches out of step. It's the self-willed person who demands to hold to their own opinion or preference even after other words advised. And he says these people must be warned. He goes on to say the faint-hearted and that they need to be comforted. So by nature or by experience, the faint-hearted are people that are timid and they lack courage. We're all called to comfort these people, to help them find their courage in the Lord. And then he says the weak. The weak need to be upheld. So we're called to come alongside those who are weak, our brothers and sisters that are weak. We're to build them up in their own strength and help them find that strength that is sourced from their relationship with Jesus. So we have the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And Paul lists these three groups of people specifically. But then he goes on to say 
Next, that what? We are to be patient with all people. To be patient with all people. Come on. You cannot tell me that this is an area where you don't need the strength of the Holy Spirit, right? Because I believe that the only way we're going to find patience with those that are difficult is to rely on the strength and the work of the Holy Spirit. So take a moment right now. Think about the people that are in your life. Are you always patient with them? This goes for the guy driving around the loop at 15 miles an hour with an Oklahoma license plate. See, I'm not from here, but I have complained about some slow drivers, and every time I'm like, well, is it an Oklahoma plate? Well, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. We love you guys from Oklahoma. <laughs> it also goes for that, that person that feels the need to text you 30 times a day about every little detail of life that might get on your nerves. Man, even just last night, I found myself praying before I went to bed, asking the Lord to forgive me for not being patient with my children as they were being wild and crazy before bedtime. See, Christians are known by our ability to love and to help people that are difficult, to be patient with people. And I don't think you need me to tell you that we can't do that in and of our own strength. We need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives for that. That's Acts 1.8, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. If God gave us perfect people to minister to, we would never do anything at all, would we? So the last part of Paul's exhortation concerning difficult people is to see that no one renders evil for evil and always pursue what is good. See that no one renders evil for evil and always pursue what is good. So as Christians... And as we are becoming sanctified, we're not out to seek vengeance, right? We're not out to seek vengeance against those that have wronged us, but rather seek what is good and allow God to be in control. What does Romans 12 say? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, when we have a forgiving heart towards others, it's not only good for them, but it's also good for us, right? Because harboring resentment, harboring unforgiveness, harboring bitterness, it's like drinking poison and expecting that to harm or to kill the person you're mad at. It's not gonna do that. It's only going to hurt and to affect you, right? And Paul ends his final instructions with regards to our worship. He speaks to worship now in two aspects, personally and publicly. Let's read together, starting in verse 16. <clears throat> he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what's he say? Rejoice always. We're called to rejoice not only in the good and the happy times of life, but we can rejoice in absolutely every circumstance that we find ourselves in. It's James 1, right? An amazing, amazing chapter of Scripture. We can rejoice in any circumstance that we find ourselves in because our joy is not based on circumstances, but it's based in God. You see, our circumstances will change, but God does not. Our circumstances will change, but God 
does not. So no matter where you find yourself today, whether you're on the mountaintop and things in life are the best that they've ever been, or you're in the valley and you feel like you're about to hit rock bottom, if you are in the Lord today, you can rejoice because God is good and he is here for you despite what your circumstances look like today. So he says, rejoice always. And then he says, what? Pray without ceasing. Now, if I'm on my way home after this and I see one of you guys driving to your favorite Mexican restaurant with your hands up like this and you're praying in your car, we're gonna have some problems. He says, pray without ceasing, but this is not a Jesus take the, mo- uh, take the wheel moment. Because it's not practical, right, to bow our heads and close our eyes all day long. Again, please do not do that. But you see, those are customs of prayer. They're not prayer itself. Prayer is simply communication with God, and we can do that all day long, can't we? Now, don't get me wrong. There is great significance and value to shutting out the distractions of the world and committing yourself to prayer. We read about that in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. There is time and value for that. But there's also room for, and huge value, I believe, in every moment of the day, fellowship with God. Every moment of the day, fellowship with God. Pray without ceasing. I see many practical takeaways from this command. Here's just a few of them. Our voice is not necessary for prayer, right? It does not have to be audible, right? I just prayed for each one of you in this moment and you didn't even know about it. Our voice is not necessary. The posture, the place, and the time that we pray are not of great importance. Now again, It is good and necessary, and each one of us should be taking those Matthew 6 moments of prayer like are instructed in the Lord's Prayer. But there is room for every moment of the day fellowship with God. We can be communicating with him always, despite the time, despite our place, despite our posture. You're never in a place when you cannot pray. So rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And then he says what he says, in everything, give thanks. So notice Paul did not say to give thanks for everything, but in everything. That's an important clarification. So you don't have to be thankful for what you are going through in life, but you should be thankful in it. Thankful to God for his goodness, despite your circumstances. Charles Spurgeon said that where joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. Where joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude, right? So when we are rejoicing always, and when we are praying without ceasing, then in everything we can give thanks. Where joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. So we are to rejoice always, we are to pray without ceasing, and we are to give thanks in everything. And then here it is, right? I love this, verse 18. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I've often asked myself, God, what is your will for me? And especially since being in ministry, I get asked all the time, what's God's will for my life? And and I do believe that God's will for your life may look different in different periods and different stages of life. But I also believe that there is a will of God for your life that is right here, that we can do all the time, that we have in, in our hands, in the Bible. You have access to it 
each moment of every day, right? What does he tell us to do? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. If ever you are wondering, what would God have for me today? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Moving now from our personal worship into our public worship. Let's pick up in verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every evil. So Paul shifts now, right? From public worship to, or from personal worship to our public worship. He gives us a few do's and don'ts here, doesn't he? Do's and don'ts concerning the way that we live our lives of public worship to the Lord. And he starts out this section with two do nots. What does he say? Do not quench the spirit. The word quench here refers to the putting out of a flame or a fire. And you know, oftentimes in scripture, the Holy Spirit is imaged as a flame or as a fire. And so what does that mean? That means it's possible for us to quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. Right? We can do this with our doubt in him. We can do this with our indifference or our rejection of him. And so Paul is saying, hey, don't do that, but rather make room for the Holy Spirit in your life. Acknowledge him and ask him to be at work within you. Be led by the Holy Spirit in every move that you make. Do not quench the Spirit. And do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Now we know that God speaks through his people, right? And while there are no modern day prophets today that are speaking on behalf of God to his people like we see in the Old Testament, right? Because we have the word of God accessible to us each and every day. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So while there are no men on behalf of God speaking to his people, God does still prophetically speak today. Maybe you've been sitting in a sanctuary similar to this one and you leave that, that church that day feeling like, oh man, he was talking directly to me that day. I've heard that so many times. That pastor, he was just talking straight to me. And maybe he was, but what I really believe was happening is God was prophetically speaking to you through that person. Now, of course, it is good for us to test prophecies, right? And we're going to look at testing things more here in a second. Test prophecies, yes, but be open to the voice of the Lord. Do not despise prophecies. So do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies. And now Paul moves from the do nots into the do's, right? He says, hold fast to what is good. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. Remember, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against angels and principalities. So evil can and does show itself in a spiritual settings and sometimes even masks itself in the presence of the church. So we're to test all things, right? And what are we testing them against? What, do we, what is the standard that we are holding these things to? It's the word of God, right? That is our standard. Test all things according to the standard of God's word. And this is one of the reasons why it's so important and we encourage so regularly around here to be in the word of God. Read your Bible. 
study it and know it so that when something is off, we can test it to his standard and not be fooled. You're going to know right then and there. That's not right. That is not what scripture says. Test all, all things and hold fast to what is good. And then what's the second thing that we do? We abstain from every evil. So as we are testing things and as we recognize the things that are not of the Lord, they must be rejected from our lives. And a fantastic way to do this is to find yourself an accountability partner to keep you accountable to these things. And that's something when we went through this in men's Bible study, we hit on hard. You've got to have that person in your life, that other man or that other woman, male to male, female to female, that can keep you accountable to the things that you struggle with in life, right? You need the power of the Holy Spirit but you also need the, the body of Christ surrounding you. So seek out that accountability partner in your life. We need to recognize the things that easily tempt us, but it's not enough just to recognize them. We've got to bring somebody into that with you, someone to help keep you accountable. And then we get to the goal, right? What is the goal? Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So these final instructions from Paul are to bring us toward something, right? To bring us toward complete sanctification. And notice the emphasis here. The emphasis for our sanctification is on God, right? It's not on us. This is a work that God will do in us. He himself will sanctify you, right? He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Paul makes it clear that in everything he instructs us to do throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, primarily in chapters 4 and 5, in everything he instructs us to do, it was never intended that is done in and of our own power, right? the work of God in you. David Guzik, again, he said, more Christians are defeated on account of self-reliance than on account of satanic attack. More Christians are defeated on account of self-reliance than on account of satanic attack. You see, sanctification is a progressive work in our lives, right? We should be able to look back and see the ways that we're becoming more like Jesus. To look back and be like, God, look at what you have done in my life. Thank you for the work that you have done in my life. And then two, we need to be able to recognize and the ways that we are not yet like Christ and ask for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to conform us in those areas to be more in his likeness. Church, this is our aim, to, con to constantly be becoming more like Jesus in every aspect of our lives.